WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Heart disease is the leading cause of death around the world, and heart defects at birth are the most common birth defects in humans. Today we're talking to Yanni Israeli, who creates mini hearts in the lab. Welcome, Yanni. May you please tell us about yourself and the mini hearts you grow for your research? Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, so in short, what we do is we take human stem cells and we manipulate their environment to make them become more like a human heart, kind of trying to mimic what is happening, similar to how a human fetus is developing in the uterus of the mother. But we're focusing on the heart. So these mini hearts is what we call organoids which is a general term for a small model of an organ that resembles the actual organ as you see it in the body, but is either simplified or, in this case, significantly smaller. These organoids or mini hearts are very, very useful because they can, first of all, be used to model heart development in stages of heart development that we cannot reach in actual humans. For example, the fetal heart. So these organoids can be very, very useful in both studying how different stages of development occur, but also they give us access to study these stages in the development of disease. We've talked about stem cell research in the past. How are you using stem cells to actually grow these heart organoids in the first place? First of all, I do want to talk about what kind of stem cells we use. When people hear stem cells, they usually think of embryonic stem cells, which are the most common type of stem cell. But what we actually use is a type of stem cell called induced pluripotent stem cells. And these are stem cells that were not retrieved from embryos, but rather they were taken from adult cells, usually like skin fibroblasts, for example, and they were reprogrammed to become stem cells. So now these cells that used to be skin cells now have the same properties as embryonic stem cells. So now they can be used to become any other cell in the body. What we do is we take these cells that are now in a stem cell state and we add growth factors and chemicals that are known to push these cells towards a cardiac-like specification. So these have been done in the past in many, many studies, but only on a two-dimensional level. What we did is we took our stem cells aggregated them into a sphere, and then we started inducing all these environmental changes. So now we're growing, we're we're telling these stem cells to become heart cells, but instead of doing so in two dimensions, we're doing it in three dimensions, giving a lot more freedom to shape themselves as they would in the fetal, fetal heart or in the uterus. It really has been a while since we've spoken about stem cells. I think it's been since 2019 that we had an episode about stem cells. For those of you that don't know, there are stem cells all over your body, even in the gums of your teeth. You said that you're reprogramming these heart organoids by adding different growth factors and other stuff to make the stem cells think that they're growing into a heart. However, how do you confirm that it actually is a heart organoid versus something else? Organoids have been made from many different types of organs in the body. For example, brain organoids and kidney organoids and lung organoids have all been done. And actually, when it comes to verifying heart organoids, it's actually very, very simple because they beat. You can see them spontaneously beating as a heart would. 
So that's a very easy way to tell that our differentiation has worked. However, if you want to be a little bit more scientific about it, there are specific protein markers that are only expressed in the cells of the heart. So we can look for those and we can verify that what we're seeing are in fact heart cells. But it does help to see under a microscope the organoids beats. And you can. These organoids are about a millimeter in diameter. So you can actually see them with the naked eye, but they are quite small. Under a microscope, you can see them beat as a heart would. And actually, they beat a very similar speed as well. So that's a very easy confirmation. It's really cool that you're able to actually see these organoids beating just like the hearts do, and also that you're able to see them physically. That makes me think of the characteristics that differentiate between a heart and a heart organoid. Besides the actual size of the organoid, what are some other common differences between the human heart and what you're studying? For example, one of the things I think about is how there's four different chambers in a normal-sized heart. Does it follow some sort of similar structure? The heart, of course, has four chambers. The human heart does. And our organoids do, in fact, develop chambers. However, they're not organized in the same way as right now as our human heart is. So we don't see a very well-defined four chambers organized into ventricles and atria. Rather, we see anywhere from four to eight smaller chambers in the organoid. Now, you do have to keep in mind that these organoids are very, very immature. They're close to maybe day 56 of gestation. So they're very similar to the fetal heart. However, they are significantly smaller. And that's because we are growing them in a lab on a plate rather than in the uterus. So they're not shaping themselves physiologically correct as a human heart would. And you did mention size earlier, and there is a significant difference because our organoids are at the moment limited to how big they can get. The human heart, of course, grows very, very large to the size of your fist, in fact. But our organoids cannot grow more than a millimeter as of right now. And that's a lot to do with the fact that the, the heart has blood pumping through it, and it has vessels, blood vessels running through it that help give nutrients and remove waste from all the cells all around this very large structure. Our organoids don't have that at the moment. While we do see blood vessel-like structure, as of right now, we do not know if they are functional. So while it's very exciting and it does show promise in studying coronary heart disease in our organoids, as of right now, they are not functional as they don't pump blood. They're in media and they do pump liquid, but there is no known nutrient transfer on a larger scale. So our organoids are limited to what size they can grow into, which the human heart grows with the fetus and definitely larger than a millimeter in size. Now I'm wondering if the organoid doesn't grow more than a millimeter because of the dish that it's grown in and the nutrients that are using it to grow it with. If you expanded the dish and if you added other nutrients or if you even grew it on a dynamic surface, would that be able to make the organoid grow bigger and possibly into an organ? I am not sure. What you're saying would, in all likeliness, help grow the organoid bigger. But there are other limiting factors that we might need to consider. Like, for example, these organoids are over a span of a few weeks, which is much, much less time than the human heart takes. So time is also a factor here. They also don't have a supporting structure. For example, when the fetus develops, it is attached to the umbilical cord and therefore attached to the mother. 
and there's a continuous flow of new cells that allow the heart and the rest of the fetus to grow larger and larger. We don't add new cells to our organoids. The cells divide themselves, but they don't get a new source of cells. So it would be a lot more difficult to grow these organoids into an actual functioning heart. However, there are other groups in the world that are looking into things like 3D bioprinting, rather, or layering organoids together into a larger structure. However, I do want to point out that that is not our goal in this research right now. These organoids were never intended to actually develop into a full functioning heart. Rather, they're very, very useful as a large-scale model of the heart, because in each plate, we can make up to 96 organoids at one time from the same type of cells. You can make as many plates as you'd like. So rather than having one very good functioning heart, we have up to thousands of mini hearts that can be used for things like screening for diseases or screening for different drugs for a certain patient. I think it's very clear that you have a really good control on how the growth of these organoids is taking place as you're going through your research. Since these organoids are meant to help represent what a growing heart looks like as a fetus is developing, when it comes to the growing hearts that you're studying, what are you hoping to get out of it? Are you studying a particular disease when it comes to these organoids, or are you simply interested in understanding the development of them themselves? So these organoids can be used to study the development of the heart itself. And I do believe that my PI, Aitor Aguirre, is planning on pursuing that with other students. But me personally, I'm interested in the development of disease. Now, congenital heart diseases, which are heart diseases that you are born with, are very, very common. In fact, they're the most common types of defects, and they happen in about 1% of all live births. Most people don't even know that they have um, a congenital heart defect because most of them are not dangerous. But we do not know, in many cases, what causes them. Now, there are two types of these type of diseases. Ones that are genetic, so genetic defects that could happen either due to mutations or something that you've gotten from your mother or your father. And there are acquired diseases, something that happens during pregnancy that affects the development of the heart. I'm more interested in the latter, in acquired diseases. Right now, I'm looking into defects of the heart that happen as a result of pre-gestational diabetes. So that's it. That is when the mother is diabetic before conception, how that affects the development of the heart. And it has been shown in clinical studies that maternal diabetes does significantly increase the risk of these kind of heart defects in the developing fetus. So these organoids are a great tool to investigate how these defects are caused and can be used to potentially look for therapeutic agents or drugs or dietary supplements that could, if not prevent, alleviate or ease the causes of pregestational diabetes. So that's what I'm interested in right now. And we've already shown in our organoids that there is a difference in organoids grown in healthy conditions versus organoids grown in diabetic conditions. So now moving on, we're just going to try to find how can we remedy these causes. It's interesting that you're looking at what happens when a mother is diabetic and how that affects the fetus, because many people are diabetic. So with your organoids, how are you actually doing this in your experiment? For example, that media or nutrients that you're giving them, are you altering that and maybe altering the amount of vitamins or maybe the amount of oxygen that these cells or organoids are receiving? 
So that's exactly right. That's exactly what we do. Now, our model is a little bit simplistic, but we focus on the main causes of diabetes, which is glucose and insulin. So what we do is we try to mimic the environment that the fetus would have if it is developing in a diabetic mother. So there are very clear definitions of what concentration of glucose in a person would mean that they have diabetes. So we use the same concentrations and even sometimes a more extreme concentrations of glucose in the media that the organoids are grown in. And then we have the exact identical media just with healthy levels of glucose and then the same goes for insulin. So that is how we mimic the diabetic conditions that a fetus growing in a diabetic mother would experience. Yeah, no kidding about the diabetes studies. It's one of the most prevalent causes of birth defects. When you're introducing the glucose with these heart organoids, I'm really curious, are there any sorts of chemical treatments or drug treatments that you introduce to the dish that the organoids are being grown on to see if it's able to counteract the negative impact of high sugar in those organoids? That's exactly what we are currently looking into. There are, as you're probably aware, many different therapeutic agents out there and medicine and dietary supplements that are being used to remedy the symptoms of diabetes. We're currently looking at different types of omega-3 oils or fatty acids or fish oils that are often used in prenatal vitamins. These omega-3 fatty acids have shown to have some degree of help in pregnant mothers who have diabetes, but the mechanism of how this helps is not known. So our organoid system is exactly perfect to test whether or not these fish oils actually help, and if so, what mechanism is actually happening in, on a cellular or molecular level that actually leads to preventing or mitigating these symptoms in the developing heart. So right now we're looking into several of these omega-3 fatty acids. Well, it's great that you're already seeing in your preliminary results that the omega-3 is counteracting the effects of the glucose in these heart organoids. It makes me think that if you don't know the exact mechanism, you can understand the cycle that it's going through and inhibit or block some of the things or activate some stuff to see exactly how the pathways are working. Now, all this sounds very complicated, and our listeners are probably wondering, what is the hardest thing about growing a heart organoid in the lab? What are some obstacles that you've encountered? Well, as with any new technique, you need a lot of optimization. So it took a long, long time to actually get these organoids to not only work and be and, and beat and have all the cell types that we want them to have to represent the heart, but most importantly, to be reproducible. So we need every organoid with the same conditions to look more or less the same. Otherwise, we don't know if the differences we're seeing between organoids are a result of the treatments we're giving it or just, for example, human error or natural difference between these organoids. So the most difficult part was to get our protocol technique to be very, very reproducible. I started working on this protocol about two and a half years ago, and I think today I probably made around 7,000 organoids just myself, but other people in my lab have also created organoids. So as a lab, we've probably created close to 10,000. And it took us a long time, but eventually now we're at a state where we feel very comfortable that every time we make a plate of those organoids, as long as they're in the same conditions, they are very, very similar to one another and therefore can be used to study effects of external stimuli. It's great that you're working on this kind of research project. 
You had mentioned earlier in your interview that you are able to view these organoids with the naked eye, but it's probably easier to use a microscope. Are there any forms of microscopy that you use in your work that allows you to better understand and characterize the organoids that you're studying in your plates? Yes, indeed. While you can see the organoids with the naked eye, that does not give you a lot of information, aside from just seeing that they're there. So we have a very basic light microscope in our lab that we can just quickly look to make sure the organoids are there, that they're the size and shape that we expect them to be, and that they're beating. But we also used different kinds of microscope for more detailed or specific analysis. For example, we have used confocal microscopy to look for the different types of cells. As I mentioned, there are specific proteins that are only expressed in heart cells. But the only way to visualize these proteins is to use what's called immunofluorescent staining, which can be viewed under a confocal microscope which actually gives us very, very beautiful images because we can see different colors of different proteins and that gives us a nice view of the organoids. So we can see, for example, all the cardiomyocytes, which are the muscle cells of the heart and how they're shaped in the organoid in comparison to epicardial cells, which is the outer layer of the heart. And also I've mentioned blood vessels, which are made up of endothelial cells. And we can see how they're kind of formed into a very nice network of vessels. And that could only be under a confocal microscope or a microscope of a similar technique. But aside from that, we've also used an electron microscope to view very fine and small details within the cell. As you might know, cardiomyocytes or heart muscle cells, as well as other muscle cells of the body, contain fibers called sarcomeres. And those can be visualized under an electron microscope on a very, very small scale, so on the micron level. So we can see how the sarcomeres look in our organoids or in the cells of our organoids. We've used a different type of fluorescent microscope that can image live cells. So we can actually image the individual cells as they beat. And what we did is we actually added a fluorescent dye that, that shows green pulses every time a cell beats. So we can actually graph the action potential of the cell as it beats, which gives us a lot of information about the cell itself. So that's all very, very exciting imaging modalities that are state of the art right now. And it's always really nice to see what your work looks like in very nice image styles, especially confocal microscopy with all the colors. We get very beautiful images, which make all our publication look very attractive to the eye. A few months ago, we actually had a lineup of episodes that were talking about different microscopy methods. So I'm here visualizing these different areas light up because for those of you that didn't hear the episodes in confocal microscopy, Basically, you can target certain areas to light up with pretty colors. To backtrack a little about what we were talking about with the glucose and then you adding other things to counteract it like omega-3, have you been able to look at that under the confocal microscope or the electron microscope as well and maybe see how the organoids are interacting with the omega-3 or with the glucose? So we have to some degree, but we're still actively working on it. But what we have been able to see under the confocal microscope, as you nicely put, we can see how different cell types represented by different colors organize themselves differently in organoids in high glucose conditions versus organoids in healthy glucose conditions. 
Well, we aren't able to tell specifically what causes these differences. We can at the moment see that their differences occur and that they are there. To determine what actually causes these differences, we would need other modalities beyond imaging, things like RNA sequencing or metabolic analyses to actually see which pathways are affected by these omega-3 fatty acids, for example. Because the confocal microscope really only gives us the end result. We can see a point of time of what the organoids look like and how they're shaped and which proteins are present, rather than what led them there. Well, I think it's really clear from this interview that you have a great handle on the work that you're doing with these heart organoids. Since it's been a while since we've last seen each other, I wanted to ask, have you had an opportunity to visit any portions of Michigan or travel at all since you've come here to grad school? And do you have any favorite areas in Michigan that you've really enjoyed? Yeah, actually, moving to Michigan was my first time living in the United States. So while I visited the United States before, this really gave me a lot of opportunity to travel in the area. So yes, I have traveled quite a bit within Michigan. I've been to Traverse City. I've been up north to the UP several times, which is beautiful up there. I've also been to Mackinac and Mackinac Island. A couple of years ago, we actually went ice climbing up in the Upper Peninsula. That was really, really nice. That's not anything I would have experienced before. Living in Michigan actually also gave me my first real winter. So all these winter activities that I was never aware of suddenly all opportunities to experience. So I definitely capitalized on that. So yeah, I'm a big fan of the UP, especially in the fall. I think the colors up there are beautiful and it's always a nice drive. Oh yeah, you definitely named some of my favorite places to go to in Michigan. However, I've never been ice climbing though. I'm kind of afraid that I'm just going to slip and fall, but I have been to ice caves and that was pretty interesting and a little scary, but it was fun. Well, it was great talking to you again, Yanni, and thank you so much for talking to us about your very impactful research on heart organoids. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.